you for the people here. God, thank you for Josh Roseberry and how you're working in his life and in his family. We were so greatly encouraged by, by getting to see that this morning. God, thank you for uh, Coach Foster and, 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 and through us just being willing to prepare some meals. We have now received this relationship with him and we were blessed by him today. God, we, we know that your word is working in our hearts and we're gathered here tonight to hear it again. Lord, but before we get to that, we want to pray. We lift up to you, Diane Kirk, Lord. We pray that you continue to heal her. and We pray, God, that you'd give her strength as she battles this cancer. Lord, we pray that you'd keep her encouraged and trusting in Christ. We pray, God, for Ronnie Sanford. We hate to hear of the position he's in. We pray, Lord, that he would know you and trust in you and that we would serve him well. God, we pray for... Uh, our dear brother, Mr. Ray Harris, as he goes tomorrow for another chemo, Lord, uh, be gracious to him and give him strength to endure it. God, we pray for Rick Hall. We pray your blessing upon him. Uh, Father, we, we pray for this, this young boy, Jace, that has this virus that Josh Womble has told us about. Lord, we pray that you would heal him. Pray that in the name of Jesus. Father, we pray for these missionaries in Turkey. We pray that you would lead them and guide them by the power of your spirit. We pray that you would get that family back together, that the, the mom and dad, husband and wife would be with their children. Father, we pray for uh, what's happening in Italy. Thank you, God, for Terry reminding us of this. We pray for your, your mercy there to help those people and give them safety. God, we pray for the family of this, this police officer that was killed. We hate to hear of a family broken up. We ask, Lord, that you would work there and that you would provide for that family. And you would use this tough situation for your glory. And Father, we are humbled before you now. We ask for your forgiveness, forgiveness for our sins. And we pray now, God, that you would give us ears to hear the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you all know that, that, that Jake Beatty is an awesome part of our church, our associate pastor here, and, and does a lot. And tonight, we get an opportunity to, to get to know a little bit of his family. His brother, Luke, is here, and Luke is here with his wife, and I think y'all's baby is here too tonight. Yep, so they're here. And, and Luke is a seminary student and uh, wanted an opportunity to preach, and so we're glad to have him here tonight. Luke, won't you come on up and preach God's word to us? Well, good evening. Uh, thank you for the invitation to come, little brother, Pastor Jake. I invite you to turn your Bible to Psalm 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, I think it's on page 485. Uh, if you're new to church or new to Christianity, it may seem a little odd that we're opening a book that's parts of it are written 3,000 years ago, and uh, we're just going to go to it and read it. Well, as Christians, we believe that it's the Word of God, and uh, it's his revelation to us, and it can speak to us even today in, in the 21st century. And what I hope to show you from Psalm 2 is uh, true comfort is found in the middle of life struggles and in hardships um, in God. And so follow along as I read from Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
the kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will enable us by your Spirit to hear your word. Soften our hearts to your truth and refresh us with the gospel of your Son. Father, help me to bring out the truth from your word with clarity and boldness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the year 203 AD, Perpetua, who was a recent Christian convert, found herself in a Roman arena. She was facing her death for converting to Christianity. This new mother was thrown to the wild beasts for the, amu- the amusement of those in the stands. And she was finally put to death when they wouldn't kill her with a sword. In the 1760s, just before the American Revolution, in the American colony of Virginia, a Baptist preacher named James Ireland was thrown into prison for preaching without a license. He continued to preach anyway through a grate in his cell, and all the people that were listening to him were beat and whipped by his opponents. His opponents even went so far as to urinate on him as he preached through the grate. And that's just one of over 30 religious persecutions in the colony of Virginia alone. And even this month, a news report came out that gave the status of Christians in North Korea. It said that Christians are routinely sent to political prison camps, and there they are subjected to torture, which includes beatings, being hung on a cross over a fire, crushed under a steamroller, herded off bridges, trampled underfoot, and used as test subjects for medical training and experimentation. People have been raging against God and against his people since Genesis 3, since the Garden of Eden. And Psalm 2 answers the question of why this is so, and it also answers what God is doing about it. So I think it's important when you're looking at Scripture anywhere to ensure that we do so in its context. So Psalm 2 stands at the head of the Psalter, along with Psalm 1, and together they make up an introduction to the entire book. So they introduce themes that if you were going to read through the whole book of Psalms, you would see over and over again, like delight in the word of God, uh, destruction of the wicked, uh, the enemies of God and his people, the sovereignty of God, and the promise of the coming Messiah. And throughout church history, both of these psalms have kind of been uh, lumped together quite often. And one of the early church writers was discussing the prefaces to the psalms. And you can see on Psalm 3, it says, A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. It kind of just gives a little bit of detail of what's going on, a little background text, uh, to help you understand what that psalm is about. Well, if you notice, 
neither Psalm 1 nor Psalm 2 have a preface like that. And what he said is Psalm 1 is easy enough to understand. The righteous flourish, the wicked perish. And about Psalm 2, he said that its preface is Psalm 1. So if we're going to understand rightly what Psalm 2 is saying, it's going to be helpful if we understand what Psalm 1 says. So I just want to take a minute and look at that. Um, One other reason why I think these should be looked at together, if you look at the very first verse of Psalm 1, it starts out, Blessed is the man uh, who walks not in the way of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And if you look at the very last verse of Psalm 2, it said that blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's a beatitude at the, uh, at the beginning of the one and at the end of the other, and it kind of bookends them both. And what happens with bookending is everything in the middle of the book, all the pages, somehow, some way to go together. It's up to us to figure out how that is. Uh, so here, let's read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 again, and just, or sorry, Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2, and get the context. So blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. So the psalmist here says that the way to flourish in this life is to find your delight in the law of God, the word of God, and to avoid the way of the wicked. The psalm ends with a condemnation of the wicked into the coming judgment and the promise that the righteous, their way will be known by God and they will prosper. So Psalm 2 then opens with a question in light of what Psalm 1 says. It says, so if it's true that the wicked will perish at the coming judgment and that delighting in and following the word of God leads to flourishing, then why do the nations rage? Why do people plot against God and his people? This world is filled with people that hate God and hate his people. So Psalm 2 identifies some of these people as kings and rulers, as you see there in verse 1 and 2. When we think of people who are flourishing, we often think of kings and rulers. These are some of the wealthiest people on earth. So the question is, how can Psalm 1 and how can Psalm 2 both be true at the same time? Let's find out. So I think the main idea of Psalm 2 is this, that no matter the perceived reality around us, God is sovereign and ruling over all. And in him we find ultimate fulfillment and comfort. No matter the perceived reality around us, God is sovereign over all. And in him we find ultimate fulfillment and comfort. Now Psalm 2 kind of breaks up nicely into four different sections where we see four different people or groups of people talking. And so that's how we're going to break this apart. So let's take a look at the first three verses where we see the kings of the earth speak. So verse 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So to the earliest hearers, these nations that they were talking about are most likely the Philistines. And 2 Samuel 5.17 says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. They had just got through defeating King Saul, and they were not about to stand idle while another king came to power over them. And then during the exile to Babylon, the psalm again took on a little more meaning, uh, where now you've got Assyria, Babylon, Moab, Egypt, Tyre, Sidon, and all other countries. They were all against Israel and Judah. And then even after they returned from exile, you still have the Greeks and you still have the Romans ruling over 
um, the area of Israel. What we see is the character of these, of these nations is clearly in contrast to what Psalm 1 says, the righteous man that God promises will prosper. So where the, where the righteous man meditates on the law day and night, we see how the nations meditate day and night on how they can overthrow God and his king. If you look at verse 1, it says they plot against him. That word plot is the same word that is underneath the word for meditate up in Hebrew 1 or up in Psalm 1. Where the righteous man is planted uh, near the life-giving water of God, his word, the people against God are planted in opposition to him. Verse 2 says they have set themselves. They've kind of dug in. They've entrenched themselves against God. And where the righteous man finds his delight in the word of God, the nations see it as bondage. It's something that needs to be overcome. Verse 3 tells us that the nations rage because they see God's commands as a burden. They have no intention to submitting to God, to God's king, to God's word. They have their own laws. They have their own king. They even have their own gods, and they have no intention of submitting to another one. But God is still claiming that he is king over them. So what this boils down to is just unbelief. They don't believe that Psalm 1 is true, and so the nations rage. So what we can see is that there is no comfort outside of God. The nations plot, they scheme, but they're unsatisfied and they're angry. And in verse 1, it says that it's all in vain, it's useless. So it'd be easy to talk about all the nations that are outside of us here tonight that are railing against the church and railing against God, and I do believe that all those nations are out there. But how about us? Do we rage against God? If we look to Matthew chapter 12, we'll see that the Pharisees, who I would consider some of the most conservative church people out there, raging against Jesus. They raged against God. Verse 14 there says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, against Jesus, on how to destroy him. So it's pretty clear that church people can rage against God. What it boils down to, again, is just unbelief. So if you've never bowed your knee to King Jesus or swore allegiance to God's anointed, then you are raging against God, and you will perish. Verse 9, as we'll see in a little bit, promises that you'll be broken with a rod of iron and smashed like a piece of pottery. So I beg of you now, come to Jesus. Believe in him before it's too late, and his wrath engulfs you like dry dry grass in a wildfire. But most of you here are Christians. You have sworn allegiance to King Jesus. So how about us? Can we rage against God? I think we can, but I think it's, it's much more subtle. So we believe that Jesus saved us by grace through faith, through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. But we can fall into areas of unbelief afterward. So from, from time to time, you can fall into the trap that, well, surely, now that I'm saved, I must do some good works uh, to stay on God's good side. I don't think we would ever say this out loud, but... Uh, it's effectively what we do with our lives. And we tell ourselves there's no way that God is pleased with me right now after I just did such and such a sin or after I missed my morning devotion. Or you can fall into the other trap where now that I'm saved by God, he doesn't require any change in me at all. And your life doesn't look any different than it did before you were saved. Both of these are errors in a different form of unbelief. And thus it's rage against God. 
The truth is God loves you because you are attached to his king. Jesus. Because he loves his king, he loves everyone in the kingdom. And because you are in union with Christ, the work to obtain God's love is over. That's the rest that Jesus Jesus talks about when he says, Come to me, all you who are uh, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Once you realize you don't have to work for God's favor anymore, you are now free to be like the righteous man from Psalm 1 and meditate on the word. Uh, You'll be changed by the Holy Spirit into one who resembles more and more more our King Jesus. And there is great comfort in this rest. But if we're honest, it's hard to say just by looking around us that the righteous man will win win the day. It doesn't seem like it. There just seem to be far more people against God and they seem to be having the upper hand. But the nice thing about Psalm 2 is for the rest of the passage, we're kind of, if you think of the theater, you've got the curtain is raised, and now we get to see things from a different point of view. We get to see into heaven, and we get to look down on the whole big picture from God's point of view. And as we move into verses 4 and 6, we'll see God speaks, and we get to see things as he sees them. So in verse 4, he says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king in Zion, or on Zion, my holy hill. The very first thing you see is that God is enthroned in heaven. Isaiah tells us a little bit about what this looks like. It says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Then above him stood the seraphim, and they called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The throne room of God is infinitely higher than that of the kings of the earth, just as his authority and power is infinitely higher than theirs. We also see in verse 4, you look at it, it says his his response to this uprising is laughter. But what does that mean that God laughs? People laugh for quite a few reasons. So while these nations rage, and God's people are being persecuted, and if you think of those examples earlier, some are even dying. Does God think that's funny? Well, no. God thinks it's ridiculous that his creation would rise up against him at all. Three times we see God laughs in the Psalms, or in the Bible in general. And in each instance, his laughter is followed closely by his wrath on those who are his enemies. Here it says God holds them in derision. He finds the nations contemptible. They're unworthy to live. They're utterly shameful. So he addresses them in his wrath. God's wrath is a touchy subject. We often like to think of God just as love and let it stand at that. But if you're in Christ, there's really no reason to fear that wrath. It becomes kind of a wonderful thing. As a Christian, you are promised to experience some sort of persecution. Uh, Paul promises that in 2 Timothy 3.12. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. God's wrath against those who rage against him and his people, it shows that he's not indifferent to sin and evil. He's aware of all the injustices that we go through in our lifetime, and he will deal with it. So there's great comfort in that. God will repay those who do us harm and evil. You don't have to worry about doing that yourself. So you are free because you are in Christ to take pity on those who are outside of Christ And instead of worrying about punishing them, you can pray for them instead. His response to these kings is simply a declaration. He doesn't do any action. 
he declares his own king. And look at verse 6. It says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is just one king that God sets up against all the kings and the rulers of the world. God's power is not in numbers, but it's in his, his, his speech. Whatever he says happens. So when God sets his king, he's immovable. Verse 6 also says, He set his king on Zion on his holy hill. Now, Zion signifies a couple different things throughout the Bible. Uh, most times it just means Jerusalem. But it also, it means a little bit more here that it's the dwelling place of God, not necessarily just Jerusalem. But so as the dwelling place of God, Zion is seen as a place which is immovable. If God's there, nobody's going to be able to conquer God. By placing his king there, by placing his king in Zion, God is declaring that he is setting his immovable king on his unconquerable mountain. No king is ever going to be able to assail it. It's like he's just taunting him. He's like, go ahead. Come on. Rage against me. There's no way you are going to succeed. This is the God that has spoke earth into existence, the, the stars and the heavens. He spoke man into, into existence and created him in his image. Whatever God declares will happen. But look at verse 6 again. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I think an important thing to note about God's king is that he rules from God's presence. So if Zion does mean that it's God's presence, his king rules from there. Having a powerful king who's unconquerable, it's only good if that king is good. So if it's Joseph Stalin that God places in this place of power, that is not a good thing. There's no term limits for kings. But by telling us that this king reigns from God's dwelling place, his holy hill, God is assuring us that his king is holy and righteous just as he is. Keep your finger here in Psalm 2 for a minute and flip back to Leviticus chapter 8 and 9. Here Moses tells us what had to take place in order for Aaron and his sons just to merely enter the presence of God. In chapter 8, you're going to see different sacrifices were taking place all week leading up to Aaron being able just to enter into that presence. And it's gallons upon gallons of blood uh, from different animals had been shed already up to this point that we're going to read. So look with me in verse in chapter 8, Leviticus chapter 8, 33 through 35. And in there Moses says, you shall not go outside of the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the day of your ordination are complete. For it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord is commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you will not die. For so I have been commanded. So another day of sacrifices goes by until we get to chapter 9 and in verse 23. And there we read that Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. So what we see here, you've got eight days of sacrifice and quarantine from sin in the entrance of the tent of meeting before Aaron could even go in just to enter, not to stay, just to enter. But God's king rules from Zion. Turn back to Psalm 2. He rules from the presence of God. 
Therefore, that means he must be holy as God is holy. Otherwise, he would be unable to stay in God's presence, and he would die. So there's great comfort there knowing that the character of God and the character of his king is that he is holy. This immovable God is completely holy. So now the big question is, who is this king? Who is God's anointed? The word anointed there that we saw in verse 2 is the same word that you often hear translated either Messiah in the Old Testament or Christ in the New Testament. It's a term that means kingship. Uh, For Israel, this meant uh, like the Davidic kings. So you had David and you have Solomon. These were both pretty great kings in the history of Israel. But neither one of them really had the holiness of God. Both of them had pretty substantial moral failures. And every other king in that line uh, were pretty much complete failures compared with these two. So to whom is this psalm referring to ultimately? The Jews found encouragement in their exile that God would one day uh, send the Messiah. But the thing is, they're still waiting. The difference between Jews and Christians is that we know who the Christ is. And that's who's about to speak. So look at verses 7 through 9, and we'll see what God has declared to the Messiah. So verse 7 through 9 says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, so God has said to his king, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God has given a decree to his anointed, and in it he declares three things. He declares who God is, I'm sorry, who the king is, the extent of his kingdom, and what he is to do. So God declares that this king is his son. What does that mean? In Exodus 4, 22, God refers to Israel as his firstborn son. And it shows an intimate relationship between God and his people, kind of a preeminence. Also in the background of this verse is the covenant that God made to David when he makes him king. And that's kind of what this verse would have meant to Israel. And if you look at 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 16, God speaks to David about his offspring. And here's what he says about his line. It says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So that's all David's sons. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. These verses say that David and his sons will be sons of God. It refers to everyone from Solomon up to the person who is currently seated on the Davidic throne today. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever, and your throne shall be established forever. God declares this king is in the line of David. So the New Testament in Acts specifically says that this refers to Jesus. Acts 4.27, after it directly quotes the first two verses of Psalm 2, it says, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So all the nations, including Israel, conspired against God and his anointed, Jesus. 
Here and in other places, the New Testament goes into pretty great lengths to show that Jesus is the king in this Davidic line. If you uh, want evidence of that, go read the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew, and that's what that's all about. So what is the extent of his kingdom? How big is this kingdom? As a son of God, in the line of David, he was given an inheritance. Uh, God claims that all the nations of the earth belong to him. In verse 4, God's throne is in heaven. It's above the earth, and everything underneath it is in his dominion. And he gives all this dominion to his king. So the whole earth is Christ's possession. And what is he going to have this king do? Well, if you look at verse 9, he will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So all the people, all the earth is God's inheritance, and he's going to act out his wrath as king. So all the nations that have gathered together against God will be dashed into pieces by God's king. Psalm 1 calls them the chaff that will be driven away. Pottery doesn't stand a chance against an iron rod, and neither does anyone who opposes God. So we've established that all sinful people rage against God. And now we know that in his wrath, God is going to send his king to put down the rebellion. But in this final section, now we see the text take a surprising turn, something we wouldn't expect. And this is where uh, the king speaks to the people, asking them to think in wisdom. So verses 10 through 12 says, Now therefore... O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So it starts off with a warning. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Essentially telling them how you are acting is not wise. Your rage against me is not wise. And then the turn. So up until now, there was zero hope for anyone who's ever raged against God. But now we're told in verse 11, now we're told to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. When I was first reading this, it struck me as quite odd that God would give his king an inheritance just to destroy them, wipe them out right away. And so the good news here is that before God's king destroys the nations, he makes an appeal to them to serve God with fear instead. So there's a chance for us to change our ways, to serve God, and to submit ourselves to his son. And that's the idea behind verse 12, where you see kiss the son. So whether this is an image of kissing the, the ring of the king or bending down and kissing his feet, it's the idea that you're recognizing his authority over you, his right to rule us. And comfort comes in submitting to a sovereign God and his king. Doing so enables us to escape the wrath that is rightly due us for our sin. But we said earlier that God was going to punish sinners through this king. These are the people that are doing Christians harm. Uh, this king was supposed to punish those people. Now he's just going to let them off the hook? The truth is that this whole story is not revealed in Psalm 2, and it won't be until you get to the New Testament. And Before God sends his king to destroy the nations that rise up against him, he sent his son to take their place. So God sent his eternal son, Jesus. He sent them to the earth to rescue sinners. And even though he is perfect and holy, 
and is able to live in the presence of God without being cast out or, or being put to death, God sent him to the cross to die for the sins of the nations. And just as we saw Aaron had to make sacrifices for the sin before for the sins of him, for the sins of the people, before he can enter into the presence of God and bring the glory of God to the people, Jesus made himself a sacrifice so we could come into the presence of God. And now that he has risen from the dead, all who bow down in repentance of their sins, submitting to Jesus, are forgiven. And they're free to serve the king, and they escape the wrath that is coming. For those who still refuse to pay homage to the king, though, his anger is still on you, and you will perish in his wrath. No one knows how much longer there is until he carries out the charge given to him by God. Verse 12 tells us that for his wrath is quickly kindled. We don't know how much time is left before he carries out verse 9 and strikes the nations with the rod. But what we do know is sure is that the sentence will be carried out. Since God has spoken it, since God has declared it, nothing can be more sure. So what should our response be to Psalm 2? What does God want us to do as a result of hearing and reading this? Look at the last sentence of the psalm. It says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I think that's the biggest thing that God wants us to do. He wants us to take refuge in God. There's enemies all around us, and it's true that Satan is prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. But as we see, that's not the entire story. God is up above, ruling and reigning over everything. We do suffer in this life as Christians, but we have a holy God who knows everything that we're going through and has appointed a king to deal with it. He's going to deal with all our enemies, either in grace or in wrath. But if you are, a, if you are in Christ, even if you are killed in this life, you will enjoy him forever and eternity to come. So how do you take refuge in God? Well, here's a couple of suggestions. Psalm 1 tells us to delight in the law of the Lord. So read God's word regularly. Meditate on it. Live in the word. Another thing to do is just pray. Ask God to help you endure through life's troubles. Pray also for the Christians who are actively being persecuted right now. And pray for those who are raging against God. Another thing to do is come to church regularly, something you've all already are doing. God has given us the church so that we can go through this life together and you have people that can speak the truth of Scripture into your life and pray with you. Another thing is take the Lord's Supper. No matter how much we fail in this life as Christians, and we will fail, the Lord's Supper reminds us that because we are in union with Christ, we are still invited into the presence of God. It reminds us that because of the work of Christ, one day there will be an end to our suffering, and that we will sit at the wedding feast that's pictured in Revelation. So the first and main thing to do as a result of this is just take refuge in God. Take a breath. Some other implications is consider your call to missions. All these nations and people that are raging against God will suffer the penalty for their sin in eternity in hell apart from God if no one tells them that there is now a time when Jesus is offering them a chance to repent. I'm sure someone here is called to go. So I ask that you pray about it and seek the wisdom of your pastors and see if it's you that God is calling to be a messenger to these people. 
But even if you're not called, there's still plenty of people here in Fairdale that need to hear the good news that God is saving guilty sinners. Share the news with your friends and your family, knowing that nothing is more sure than that God wants to save sinners. And one thing I don't think you, one thing you should not do as a result of hearing this is don't put your trust in the kings of the earth. It's an easy trap to fall into because these are the ones we can see, we can, we can hear them all the time, and they look and they sound powerful. But the truth is, the way the wicked will perish. Don't look for them to change your circumstances. Instead, look to Christ, who is seated up at the right hand of God, enthroned in heaven, ruling over all. He has made a way for sinners to repent of their sins and to find refuge from the coming wrath. True comfort is found only in union with the sovereign God and his king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that before you sent your son to judge us, you sent him to save us for your glory. And we pray by your spirit, you would comfort us and mold us more into the image of your son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.